Hello, so welcome to this week's episode of Silent Generation. We're gonna be talking about a slogan that we wanna coin, legalized slums. So upon initially hearing this, you might think of a very literal translation of this idea, which is to allow people to live in shantytown-like conditions, in crowded circumstances, and in an unsanitary place. We're not really advocating for that. Um, that's one way that you can interpret this, but we're also gonna be talking about just allowing people to build more dense housing without as many zoning restrictions, without as many safety constraints so that they can just meet the need that's being presented by the housing crisis. Because outside of climate change, the housing crisis is the biggest crisis that we currently face as a generation. And we're gonna explore why that is and how this could be a potential solution. I'm Nathan. I'm Joseph. And Joseph and I, amongst our many strange shared interests and ideas that overlap pretty early on upon meeting each other, yeah. realized that we shared a common interest in Strong Towns. Yeah. So Strong Towns, it's an organization. It's like a nonprofit media advocacy organization. It's headed by this guy, Chuck Marone. Strong Towns describes itself, as per its website, as a 501c3 nonprofit media advocacy organization. They produce content that analyzes the failures of the post-war North American development pattern while giving citizens the knowledge and tools to start making our places better today. It was founded by Charles Marone, who usually goes by Chuck Marone, and it started as a blog in 2008 before it started to turn into a nonprofit. So I came to Strong Towns, I think, similar way through you, through the Not Just Bikes videos, which is this guy who is from, like, a classic car-dependent suburb in Canada, but then he realized how messed up it was and how, like, it just wasn't efficient and good for his family. So he just had a job opportunity and uprooted his life and his family and went to the Netherlands. And they live in Amsterdam, I believe, unless they've moved out to a smaller town. But I think they're still in Amsterdam. But, yeah, he was very, like, snarky. I don't know. I'm a cyclist. You're a non-cyclist. What brought you to Not Just Bikes? I found Not Just Bikes, I think, because of his video, How Suburbia is Subsidized. That might have yeah. been the first one that I found. Mm -hmm. But he, along with Strong Towns, they have like varied interests beyond just a singular thing like housing or bikes. Urbanism is a very broad umbrella of ideas and things that people get excited and passionate about. And so Just Not Bikes, his videos, on things other than bikes, but I've never yeah. watched any of his videos on like <laughs> cycling in the Netherlands. They're interesting, but he does always, I mean, that's the whole name of the thing is that it's not just about bikes. And even like I said for a second, they're like, oh, I'm a cyclist, you're a non-cyclist. But like one of the things he talks about is that in places with really good bike infrastructure, people stop seeing themselves as cyclists. They have like one, they have one word for like a sporty cyclist in the Netherlands. They have another one for just like a person on a bike. Yeah, but he's become a bit of a pariah in the urbanist community lately because I think a few months ago he posted some tweet that said that he thinks that people should abandon North America like he did and that it's a failed <sighs> cause, which for North American urbanists, they aren't going to leave their hometowns and go mm -hmm. to the Netherlands. It takes someone who's really quite fervent and a bit of an ideologue to do something like that. Yeah, that's funny. That's <laughs> Yeah, that's what I wrote in the docket was that like, he seems like such a nihilist on that sense. But I didn't know about that tweet. I didn't know that he had really, like, 
I don't know. He always kind of hinted towards that kind of being his view, and I'm sure it's a constantly changing view and all that. But um, yeah, he's really given up. Um, but he put his like money where his mouth is in terms of actually moving there. But yeah. he needs to understand that's like not feasible for everyone to do. There, um, there's another YouTube channel called Oh the Urbanity. It's this Canadian couple, and they critiqued basically his argument pretty well in that uh-oh. video because. In the Netherlands, sure, the biking is good, but like public transit is more expensive and has less coverage. There are things mm-hmm. that you can critique that are done better in select Canadian and American cities. Yeah. So key kind of stuff of the strong towns idea. Um, and also, I don't want this episode to feel like it's just like an advertisement for strong towns. Um, but I, I feel like all the stuff that I like feel like I've independently arrived to in terms of my thoughts on cities and development and urbanism. Strong Town's already figured out in like 2010 or something. It has a really nice long article about it. So it just seems like they did all the hard work. And I think that's one of their principles that this this stuff shouldn't require the work of experts. We have expertized something that didn't necessarily need expertise. Well, the people that are experts in the field of say urban planning or transportation they're bad at their jobs. Um, <laughs> this was a critique of Jane Jacobs, who we'll end up talking yeah. about later. But mm-hmm. the people who were in charge of urban renewal did a horrible job. And the people today who are in charge of transportation agencies for the state and federal governments are really bad at what they're doing. Just because someone is certified or they're held to be an expert in their field, it doesn't mean that they're doing a good job. I think also, like yes, those high-level decision-makers are probably pretty flawed in their decision-making process. Um, but like being in my fraternity, when you meet all these like old alumni and stuff, it's a lot of civil engineering guys. And I meet them, and they're often at the twilight of their careers, or they're retired. And they a lot of them had a hand in building like the suburban monstrosity that is like outer Chicago land. And I do believe they did it to the best of their abilities. You know, like I'm sure that the structural integrity of this useless highway overpass is to the to the T perfectly done. I'm sure the sweep of the grade and all of that, like they were given a problem and they solved it, but it was the wrong problem. Like it's a very narrow, narrowly defined scope. Like, oh, how do we connect these two busy corridors, you know, or how do we add another lane to this existing highway? Like, and when you look at that as the question, you can definitely like knock it out of the park and really do it correctly as a good engineer. But it's just, I don't know, you're working on the smallest level of things. Yeah. You want to know something funny I noticed? So when I was looking up things like what was the year Strong Towns was founded, I looked at Chuck's Wikipedia page and like a good chunk of it is actually clearly like uh, the transportation board of or like some sort of like transportation board of engineers for Minnesota, they like went after him. They um, tried to sue him because he was calling himself an engineer when his uh, certification had recently expired because he needed to like update it every few years yeah, or whatever. Yeah, of course, to have your PE, yeah. Um, yeah. That's funny. Um, yeah. yeah, he definitely makes enemies. I mean, his newest book is called like Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. Which I find funny. I should get that for our library. I should look into that. Yeah, no. Um, but yeah, he introduced me to so many ideas. Like, we need to be careful when we're talking about this this week to define terms that we already know yeah. very well. Because mm-hmm. there's so many things like we're too deep ending parking mandates, instituting a land value tax, ending mm-hmm. single family zoning, creating more missing middle housing, increasing height restrictions, and new builds by a single story transit-oriented development, bike infrastructure, fiscal solvency, 
there's all these ideas that Strong Towns advocates for that to me now, I don't even have to think about them. They are like at the front of my mind. Mm -hmm. Every time I walk around Chicago, I can start to think about these ideas mm -hmm. and look at how my city can be better. Yeah, but you've been urbanist some people totally. like yeah. they don't even know what transit oriented development is. Yeah, no, which is fair. I do kind of dream of a world where no one has to know this stuff, you know? Like this shouldn't, I know this has been put upon the average person to learn and do something about this because of the failures at higher levels and because of a kind of top-down development pattern. I, I dream of a world where like I can forget all of the <laughs> learned about this yeah. and I live in this wonderful walkable utopia with mixed use like buildings and all that. But on like teaching people terms, I was talking to my mom and I was, I think I was stuck in traffic and I was one of the few times I'm actually driving on the highway in Chicago. And I was telling her about induced demand, which is where, you know, the more you build out a highway for capacity, it fills up basically. Because when a, when a highway is constrained, when it's like tons of traffic, people will start to either not commute by car or they'll take other routes or they will um, like drive earlier or later. And so then they'll stop doing that when the new lane opens. I was telling my mom this and she just like laughed. To her it was like kind of like just insane and funny. She's like, well then why are we still doing it? And I was like, and there's the rub. Like there's, there's the question like, why are we still doing this? And it's because like, I don't know, these things become, they became entrenched over the course of you know, 50 years of the North American modern development pattern. Yeah. And to our less urbanist listeners, please stick with us through this episode, if I can, if I can beg. Yeah, this is going to be, uh, we might start we'll out, light. we're starting out a bit technical, yeah, I guess. but this is our most cancelable episode yet. Oh um, I mean, hopefully we don't get cancelled, but <laughs> uh, yeah, this is, we're touching a political third rail in America. Yeah. This is not inside uh, of the Overton window in any way. No, oh, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's getting more into the discourse nowadays. I think I'm kind of like... Like, in, in my workplace, I try and, like, I think subtly, like, bring up kind of urbanist topics and stuff to people. I don't know what compels me to do this, but I can get, I don't know, I just talk to my, like, my coworker, like, don't you hate driving? <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. I think that we are reaching a point where, like, I don't know, people are waking up to a bit of, like, this can't be, like, you know, having a long commute to a house I can't afford to a job I hate, like, and passing closed storefronts and like, you know, the property ladder being closed off to me. Um, yeah, people are gonna start to wonder why that is. Yeah, um, I mean, I actually have like a younger cousin who's like 13 maybe, he might be younger than that. But I haven't seen him in a few, I hadn't seen him for a few years because of the pandemic. We weren't mm -hmm. having like extended family meetups, but I saw him like a year ago and I learned that he was into Strong Towns and mm. Just Not Bikes and all of these other urbanist content creators that I'm into. And we had like a full conversation like both of us are having now, but I was having it with someone who was 13. Wow. So these ideas are definitely spreading. Yeah. Um, no. I mean, when I was 13, I was living in, you know, like car dependent suburbia to the T, which is Las Vegas, Nevada. And I always just had this idea of like, there's something wrong with this. Like, and I, and I had it good in like Las Vegas, like my family lived in a nice neighborhood. I could walk in this little like park system. And also the closest business to us was a Costco. So I'm probably the only person who would ever walk to a Costco <laughs> consistently and buy a hot dog. Like it doesn't, I couldn't really <laughs> buy much else from there because I'd have to like carry it back somehow. But yeah, I just knew that there would like must be some other way to do this. Yeah, um, like my 13 year old cousin, when he goes to Chicago, he tries to make his parents take Metra and bring him to Chicago on Metro. <laughs> mm. No, look at him, yeah. Yeah. 
so also in terms of like converting people and all that, I was one of the topics that Strong Towns talks about a lot is that the suburbs is like a growth Ponzi scheme, basically. You, a developer in the 50s and 60s would come to a city government and say, hey, we will pay for the creation of all the utilities to serve these houses. And the city is like, great, amazing. That's a pretty big upfront cost, so it's nice for us not to do that. You know, of course, as the city, you know, once a developer leaves, we'll take over the maintenance of it. Yeah, whatever, we'll deal with that when we get to it. And so that we'll deal with it when we get to it is <laughs> the core of like a Ponzi scheme, basically, where like you just build outwards and you like you're always avoiding the eventual like bill that's going to come due, which is the fact that like, I don't know, building spread out infrastructure is, yeah, a little more expensive than building close together infrastructure, but repairing like Largely spaced infrastructure is infinitely harder than closely spaced infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah, like in the suburbia subsidized Just Not Bikes video, they mm -hmm. talk about how single family homes are subsidized by everything else. Mm -hmm. Because economically, it's very clear that they do not generate the taxes that are needed mm -hmm. to pay for the infrastructure. But mm -hmm. The poor neighborhoods and cities, which are usually higher density, are always subsidizing the wealthier ones. Yeah. Even though intuitively most Americans would think that the poor, higher density neighborhoods mm -hmm. are contributing less to the city's finances. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and that's where, like, that's where like kind of a, I have a weird morality about this where like, in the suburbs it feels like you're getting away with something. Like eventually you're not. Like if your local like, you know, town or suburb decides to actually tax you fairly, you're going to get hit with it. But until that happens, like you're kind of getting more than you pay into it. And I just like personally would not like that. I don't really like, I've always seen myself as like, I'm capable, I can provide for myself and I can provide for others. I don't really like, of course, like <laughs> not saying I don't take government handouts or something like that. Like <laughs> if you live in America, you're receiving some kind of benefit from your government, you know, but I just always, I don't know, I don't want to be a leech. Yeah, we need better fundamentals in order to do things in society. Yeah. Like one of the biggest reasons why we as a society now feel so stagnant and like nothing can change is because in the midst of urban renewal, when we built all of these highways and changed our living patterns, we used a lot of available capital to do that. And then now because we changed how we generate money and it turns out the way that we're now generating money is far less financially viable, we have to, we like, we can't do anything to switch it back. We mm -hmm. can't like finance big mega projects anymore in the way that we could have before. But Chuck says this phrase that I really like, which is that suburbs are a single use product. That's like the way to look at it, where it's good for a single generation. Past that, the infrastructure costs are too high. Mm -hmm. And it can work if you continue to grow, if that community continues to expand and sprawl and take up more land. But once that stops, there is no way to pay that pay those debts yeah. off. Mm -hmm. And I think we should, we're going to say suburbs a lot in this, but what we mostly mean is like car-dependent suburbia. We're, we're fine with streetcar suburbs, I would say. So like, just to use Chicago as an example, like there's Oak Park and Evanston, which are both directly bordering the city of Chicago. And from their inception, they've always had a train route to the city, basically. But they weren't built with the car in mind. So they're single-family homes, but they're spaced pretty closely. There's not a garage or anything in their system. 
there's more ta- there's even townhouses out there and nowadays. I think you can build duplexes in some areas, you know, if they haven't tamped down on that. But yeah, so like suburbs, you know, places outside the direct city and immediate neighborhoods have always existed. Like there's there always is going to be a commute time to space trade-off. You know, people make that gamble inside the city, you know, in farther reaching neighborhoods. But yeah, it's just like car dependent suburbia is just this uniquely, not, not anymore because America has exported this to the world, but it was started off in America. And then we've like, it's spread to Canada. It's spread to, I mean, Australia is maybe worse at it than we are from what I've seen of them. They also have, you know, strict single family yeah, zoning. It, a lot it of seems areas. to have spread to other English speaking yeah. countries more so than other languages, mm-hmm. in part because we, like, English-speaking countries will model their laws off of each other because yeah. it's the easiest to compare. And so yeah. we have similar ideas about mm-hmm. zoning and things like that. Yeah. But I want to get into now how legalized slums fit specifically into Strong Towns. So the Strong Towns organization, they have a podcast called Upzoned, which they haven't actually posted any episodes in the past few months. Hopefully they do, because you've been listening to them this week yeah, and you really like it. <laughs> I've been binging like from the start, and now I know there's like a possible hiatus. Like I'm getting bummed at that. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll it'll come back eventually, I'm sure. They're, mm-hmm. they're a big organization. People want to hear what they have to say. But mm-hmm. there's this particular episode called This Man Overcame Homelessness by Building His Own Tiny Home on Hollywood Boulevard. And in that episode, they just... They discuss a particular news article about a man named Q who built a tiny home on Hollywood Boulevard, which actually they talk about how it was, it had wheels, so it was somewhat of a tiny trailer to some degree. But in this news article, the reporters were being very condescending. (laughs) They didn't really understand what they were even asking about. Like, they didn't know how a generator worked. They were asking him if he was like getting electricity from the city through the generator, even though that's not how generators oh, work. Damn, they're telling on themselves with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, something I have realized in adulthood is that local news is kind of just as toxic as national news. <laughs> they make you hate your neighbors as opposed yeah. to people from like other states or other countries, but it's still yeah. like, they're trying to make you hate people a lot of the mm-hmm. time on local news. But yeah. in this particular episode, it's really fun. I recommend everyone listen to it because he just goes into something that he generally doesn't want to address because it is a political third rail in America to say that people should be able to build intermediate housing that's informal as opposed to just living on the streets as a homeless person who's unsheltered. Mm -hmm. Because something he talks about is that we as a society have completely accepted that people living on the sidewalks and the streets is acceptable that we're okay with that and that we are not okay with the chaos of a shanty town, yeah. even though the people would benefit and then literally be unsheltered if yeah. they were able to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there needs to be things in between full-on housing and homelessness. And there's been stuff in the past like SROs, single-room occupancy, hotels, or SRO hotels will be called sometimes, but these are like They got called like hobo hotels or flop houses. And they occupy an interesting place in like the public memory because I mean, some of them were truly so, so, so bad. Like just dangerous, unsanitary, like, you know, appalling animal-like conditions. But on the better side, like they were better than homelessness also as well. Like they were a place that like at least centralized 
homeless people in a conditioned place where they were like city outreach and stuff could go to them. Yeah. So something that Chuck talks about in the episode is that we as a society have determined that we are not okay with having this lower standard of living of people living together in cramped, crowded conditions. We consider that to be blighted. But we as a society, we can now recognize that urban renewal was a disaster. It really was really bad for communities, particularly black communities because we looked at what we considered blight and said that the only way to resolve that was through by destroying those communities and then building something that we considered to then be, you know, modern and more humane in these like giant apartment buildings that ended up later failing as housing projects. But we would do the same thing now if we lived in a world where all of those communities still existed. We would look at those same communities and we would say that they deserve to be torn down still because we as a society still have a revulsion to what we consider blight. Yeah. We would do the same thing. You're right, yeah. We kind of hate like anything that's kind of disorderly and unsightly. Um, I, don't, I don't know where that comes from or why it emerged in the post-war era particularly. I don't know. I think... Like, people could accuse you and I of looking too fondly back on these areas. But, like, I don't know. I think I look back on them fondly. And when I say these areas, I mean, you know, slums or, like, <laughs> I think in my mind I picture, like, 1890s, like, Jewish New York. I picture, like, when my family came to this country and they were living all packed into, like, a tenement house or something. But there was, like, community and there was mobility and we survived. Like, <laughs> our yeah. family, like, it was just a transitory period in our family's history. You come to a country, you live in a packed apartment, eventually you move up to a nicer and nicer place and your kids do the same thing. It's, it's, we always want upwards mobility in America, but we're like afraid to see the first step of the ladder. Yeah, I mean, one of the critiques of tenement housing and of slums is that it's from a public health perspective, mm-hmm. which I do agree with to some oh, yeah. degree. Definitely people living in crowded conditions does increase the rates of communicable, communicable diseases and parasites and things like that. Yeah. That's the one critique that I'm the mm-hmm. most acceptable, I accept yeah. it the most. Mm-hmm. Which, like, that's why I was kind of saying like 1890s and stuff, because that was kind of around the period where we did, like, we had recovered from, like, the worst of it was probably like 1870s and 80s. I bet people didn't even know epidemics. they needed to wash their hands in oh, the 1890s. No, not or I don't know that. when they did, but... Uh-huh. <laughs> but, like... The thing is, like, actual, like, tenements with, like, inadequate ventilation and stuff like that, those are all torn down eventually. Like, I am a, I don't want anyone to take away from this that I hate building safety codes. I love a good, like, building safety codes. They are necessary and needed. But, like, the buildings, the old buildings that survive in Chicago that we can look around and see. And, I mean, my first apartment was built in the 1890s, but it was after those laws, basically. So it had every bedroom had a window, you know, there was light everywhere. Huge ceilings, too. And I've lived in only newer buildings since, and I've never had the 12-foot ceilings I had in that place. Yeah. But, yeah. So on Americans having a particular revulsion to what they consider blight, I've kind of gone through something in the past three years that has given some perspective as to why people don't want to live in proximity to what they consider to be degeneracy. So... I live right next to this building that is the biggest building on my block. It's like three stories with an attic and there's a basement that's like half above ground and it's huge. It 
housed so many families that I didn't even know how many neighbors I had living in that building. Because I lived, I've lived in the same house for eight years. And so for the first five years that I lived there, the building was occupied. And then they started a construction project to rehab the entire thing. They gutted it. And then they ran out of funding halfway through or something went wrong because something was put on the front door, like a notice from the city saying mm-hmm. that they needed to stop construction. Yeah, stop work order, yeah. Yeah. And then shortly later, they put up a real estate sign to sell the building. And they haven't been able to sell it, and it's <laughs> been at least two years. But yeah, it's a hard sell. Yeah, in those two years, my neighbors started to first use the building for barbecues. And then after a period of time, I noticed the front door was broken into. Then gang signs were spray painted on the windows. And then from my yard, which no one else can really see this, or from my backyard, my boyfriend noticed that the garage was broken into and there were mattresses on the floor. Seems like there were squatters in there and the rest of the building. But I don't want to get too explicit because there have been like crazy things that have happened the last two years in regards to that building. It's used for like parties all the time. And I've come home and had... I've been kind of annoyed and I've been kind of scared. Yeah. <laughs> there have been a lot of different things that have happened. Mm-hmm. But I can kind of see, though, how the argument, one broken window on a block is bad for the entire mm-hmm. neighborhood. This is a bit more, it's that times 10 because yeah. it's an entire building. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's, <laughs> there's people yeah. squatting in it. But to me, the solution is not to tear this building down. I actually contacted my alderman pretty early on when all of this was starting to happen because I was concerned first and foremost that this building was going to get condemned and torn down because the building is at least 100 years old. Mm -hmm. And in Chicago, now, in today's age, when a building is knocked down, who knows how long it's going to be until it's replaced. It could be 50 years. It could be 100. Mm -hmm. We live in an age where these are not easy things to replace. And so my first and foremost thing I wanted them to do was just to secure the property, to board it up, so that, you know, neighbors couldn't then argue that the building was going to get torn down. But the first call I ever got from the alderman's office was it's really annoying. I was pissed the minute I heard his voice, but he was super annoying. And he was like, oh, I'm calling to let you know the good news that the building next to you is going to get torn down. Don't worry. And I was like, no, I contacted you because I don't want that to happen. It hasn't been torn down yet, but it's still, it's like, I kind of understand though a little bit about why people don't want to live in proximity to what they consider to be squalor. Yeah. Um, you know what, I, I don't know why this story didn't come to me when I read your piece in the docket, but I guess I was kind of, I had a similar experience where I was living in, again, this old building I was talking about, my first apartment, and moving into the two units on the first floor were two cousins who, one, we had, we had an abandoned lot next to our um, apartment building, and he started parking all these cars there, and it was clearly he was like a car dealer, kind of for like lightly modified like Dodge Chargers and that those type of cars, you know? And so there'd always be people coming in and out. And then both of these, these two cousins, these two guys in their separate units, both of them each had domestic violence like situations that I witnessed from like my windows. And one of them, like I was taking out my trash and like the woman in the incident like grabbed me and was like, you need to protect me from him because he's crazy. Like I got caught up in the whole middle of it. It was crazy. It was like... Yeah, and then the other guy, during his domestic incident, his girlfriend was trying to run him over with a car, 
she was yelling at him the whole time, and she was yelling about, like, I'm going to tell the cops about your fake ID business. I mean, he was, like, <laughs> like she said selling drugs and fake IDs, too. And so this was all happening, like, just one floor down from me. And I was like, yeah, I don't want to be in this apartment building anymore. It's becoming untenable. I was, like, in communication with my landlord and all that. But, like, but I, can, I can detect a certain amusement in your voice. It was is, crazy. I, <laughs> I did kind of, like, I was, I was dating this girl at the time, and, like, when... When he was about to get hit by the car and all that, like I was about to run out there, and my ex was like, "No, <laughs> you're gonna get." So maybe I am drawn to this. I will like say that about myself. It was, it was, I don't know. It was COVID. I was bored. I wanted to see yeah. something happen, but also it just it it does take like some safety away from you too. Yeah, no, because that's initially how I've or that's how I've been in my neighborhood the whole eight years I've lived in it. I've just been amused <laughs> when I hear people fighting outside. As yeah. long as there's not gunshots, then I get yeah. concerned, but. I, you know, initially when my neighbors just started having barbecues and then I'd hear some yelling, that was okay. I was, <laughs> I was fine with it because I don't know. I just have like, I guess I have more of a preference for chaos, which is something Chuck talked about in that episode mm-hmm. of Upzoned was I'm, I'm not in line with the average American in that way where I do kind of enjoy chaos to some degree. I think I've realized this about myself, which is that like, I like visiting chaos, but I always want to come back to some kind of like sanctity, you know? Like yeah. I had some kind of sketchy friends when I grew up in Las Vegas and we'd like end up at someone's like weird apartment or house uh, with like strangers I didn't know and like just kind of an unsavory crowd. And I would like kind of be having fun with it as long as I was with my friends, but I was always so relieved to go back to my like little meticulous suburban home <laughs> basically. Yeah. And um I think even nowadays we're talking about like being at like very sketchy dive bars. And I always love visiting those, but I do love to just go back to my meticulous little like IKEA modern apartment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just think it's like yeah, you can't we think we have this need to legislate like messiness out of existence. Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, this is going into the NIMBY versus YIMBY dichotomy where you know, these people I live next to, they're fellow Chicagoans. They, they're going to live somewhere. I want them mm-hmm. to live in the city of Chicago. Yeah. We're stronger when our population is stable or grows. And so I want them to be here. I'm not going to say that they don't deserve to live in this neighborhood or any neighborhood because that's the argument that then spurred urban renewal. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. People could look at my neighbors and say that that house needs to be demolished or that house needs mm-hmm. to be demolished. And then pretty soon the whole neighborhood's knocked down. Yeah. And that's a very dangerous idea to mm-hmm. subscribe to. No, yeah. I guess my dream for that space would be like, if it hasn't been too bombed out, I would love to see it renovated. Like, you'd be surprised what people can do. People can really bring back houses from the brink. Like, it's easier if it is like, you know, solid bones, as they say. Your neighborhood doesn't seem like it's too many like graystones, you know, it's a lot more brick buildings. But there was a beautiful graystone across uh, when, I was, when I lived in Bronzeville that was fully burned out, like fully scorched, was part like of a, a fire. Like a fire had happened. Yeah, a fire had happened, and it was turned into a multi-million dollar home. Like, it, you'd be surprised. And I also yeah. say this in renovation as well, like after doing a uh, renovation of a historic townhome in Lincoln Park, I feel like it was trickier to do it because there were so many levels of renovations that had happened over time. Because Lincoln Park had been consistently pretty nice, you know? It was a building from, yeah, like 1902. Two, I think, 
And then, yeah, in that intervening time, like maybe the worst Linkin Park got was in the, like the 70s, I think, would be a dip in there. But it was always continuously inhabited, so it was never gutted. It was always like little bits and piece repairs here and there. And I think it's a lot easier to just like, <laughs> if it was fully gutted, it would have been so much easier. That's to what's that funny together. was when you think about world history, you can look at these places that have had continuous, quote unquote, civilization, you yeah. know, for a very long time, like say China. And you can recognize that they have like these traditions that have been passed down or like they have a large surplus of relics or artifacts because they didn't experience the same level of like turmoil. Mm-hmm. It's funny that you can look at Chicago neighborhoods and kind of say the same thing, but yeah. every neighborhood here has had its day in the sun. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are some neighborhoods like the one I live in now, mm-hmm. Avondale, has always been pretty working class. Mm-hmm. I, it's sort of gentrifying to some degree, but I don't think it is. it has the same sort of upper limit than other neighborhoods yeah. like Wicker Park or Logan Square do mm-hmm. because they have literal mansions. Yeah. My neighborhood, it would take quite a lot of, just quite a lot to get mm-hmm. it to the place of, say, Lincoln Park or yeah. anywhere like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always like, I, I always end up doing like a hand motion when I talk about this phenomenon in Chicago because like, yeah, Bridgeport I lived in is always, the, yeah, that kind of lower middle class consistently. And then just across the highway was Bronzeville, which used to be so great and then plummeted down in terms of like, it was really hit by like urban renewal, which then the places that weren't torn down were eventually kind of just starved of people and resources is how I describe it. So even if they weren't demolished to make, you know, a high rise, a housing project, they just suffered regardless and withered away. Yeah, it's, I'm trying to think of what neighborhood of the highest I don't know, up and down, maybe it'd be Englewood or something, because that was like a shopping center, you know, back in the 30s and had some great homes in it. And now it's like the most infamous Chicago neighborhood, basically. But what's those neighborhoods, though, Englewood and Bronzeville, they both have a lot of resources in terms of they have the Green Line. Mm -hmm. They have a fair number of Chicago Public Library locations. There are like Mm -hmm. resources the neighborhoods do have, but... Population loss has been like the number one thing that then causes like there to not be a supermarket or a grocery store in the Mm -hmm. neighborhood. And then more residents flee because there aren't those amenities. Yeah. No, I, uh, my dream for like, I mean, any part of Chicago, but particularly like the South and West sides is that like, they need to just re-center their resources around the transit stations they do have there. There There are parts of the South side that have either had their like, you know, they used to have a transit line out there and then it got removed at some point. That's like in the stockyards case or the green line that used to go all the way to Jackson Park as well. And so like, I don't know, this might sound a little cruel of me, but I think that like some of the more far flung areas should just be kind of like wound down in a sense. <laughs> and then like people should be refocused on just like if anything in a five minute walk of a transit station on the south side should have like minimum six or eight story buildings, you know? Yeah. That's like, sort of what they've done with um, 43rd on yeah. the Green Line. Mm-hmm. There's this big project where there's two, I think, 10-story buildings on both the left mm-hmm. and right-hand yes. side of the station now. Mm-hmm. And I went by it recently. I went to a Halloween party in Woodlawn and took the train back. And on the way back, I remember passing through mm-hmm. where those two buildings are and being like, wow, this is nice. Yeah, no. And I think it's not those ones, but the city has also been doing like affordable housing above and then a library on the first floor. Yeah. That's amazing. No, there's, yeah, there's not a library at the yeah, 43rd yeah, those ones, yeah. station, but uh-huh. some of the libraries where they've been doing yeah. that have been Little Italy, Northtown, Independence, 
and they're planning they're planning Humboldt Park mm-hmm. and Back of the Arts currently. But part of the reason why they are attaching libraries to these housing authority buildings, Chicago Housing Authority being the local housing agency, they are doing that in part because neighborhood organizations are going to oppose those public housing developments unless they get an amenity for them, it's something like new. the library. Yeah. Uh-huh. It does. I mean, to its credit, it doesn't seem to make everyone happy. It works. You know? Like, it yeah. works. Like It's yeah. like a very good bargaining chip. Yeah, no. I, uh, yeah, I'm all about bargaining. I think that's, like, that's, cities are a constant, like, bargaining between, like, interest groups. In the context of talking about Bronzeville and Inglewood, I think it would be a good time to talk about Jane Jacobs. Yes. So Jane Jacobs is probably the most famous individual person in urban planning. She was like a self-taught public advocate for walkable, dense neighborhoods. I don't know. Jane Jacobs is always um, like put in in opposition to Robert Moses, who was this unelected head of the parks. I think was his like title or something in New York. And so he like they give him all these attributes, which are true. Which is that he's like moved. His decisions have moved more earth than any human being in like history basically. It's more earth than the pyramids, of course, like, but he was like emblematic of the top-down approach to city building and she was emblematic of the bottom up. And Strong Towns is definitely in the bottom up. Like that is, I think if you force Chuck to like choose one word, that's what he would say, it's bottom up. Because everything is about locality. Uh, Chuck talks about this concept of uh, subsidiarity a lot, which comes from Catholicism, which is that like the most local uh, level of competence should make decisions regarding it. Like, (laughs) so in the city planning thing, it's like, you know, if your alderman's office can do it, great. If they're not competent enough, then the city should handle it. If they're not competent enough, then the state. Most things should be able to be handled at like a block basis, at a neighborhood basis, or at a city basis. Only once you get into like broader, like environmental energy distribution, regional transit, should we really start bringing in those larger players to determine things? Like, we have to give people more credit, like, that we can build stuff ground up. Yeah, and she had this idea called unslumming. So a quote on Jane Jacobs' ideas on unslumming is, for neighborhoods to regenerate or remain healthy, Jacobs believes they must have the following four indispensable conditions. One, a great mix of functions. Two, short blocks with frequent chances to turn corners. Three, a mingling of buildings at different ages and varying economic purposes. And four, a sufficiently dense concentration of people, including residents, to assure around-the-clock activity. So some of those actually, to people who aren't as well-versed in urban planning, require a little bit of explanation. So in terms of functions, that just refers to like things being mixed use. So mm-hmm. if a neighborhood is all just single-family homes, the only function it has is residential. Having more functions than that will help mm-hmm. the neighborhood recuperate. And that sounds very intuitive, but there's been huge parts of just our planning and other countries as well that have gone for this whole like zones of single use things. Like even in Chicago, we have the uh, Illinois Medical District, which I think like there is something to be gained by taking all these powerful hospital systems, putting them together and sharing resources. But also I'm sure a lot more people get seen by <laughs> you know re- the hospitals that actually serve people where they are basically. Yeah. Jane yeah. Jacobs, like, I think that because she is, like, self-taught, she really has, like, yeah, any of her writings are in such, like, plain-spoken English. It's very good for people to learn Yeah, about. 
Well, I think that the problem with urban planning at the time was that the people that were making decisions for cities, they were largely living in the suburbs already, mm-hmm. or they just had, they weren't living in neighborhoods like the neighborhoods that Jin Jacobs had lived in, which they were construing as being slums. And she was advocating against slum clearance because she saw all of this potential and she advocated for unslumming, which was the gradual improvement of the neighborhood over time as opposed to just knocking it down and replacing mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And unslumming can be construed as gentrification. I think that one of the few critiques that is made against Jane Jacobs today is on those grounds because yeah. gentrification has become a hot issue amongst mm-hmm. social justice advocates. But this is a lot better solution. Yeah, than tearing stuff down and starting from scratch. I don't know, maybe this isn't unslumming, but something I read about when um, I was just reading about like the Jewish population in Chicago over time. And it was talking about when Jews first started moving into um, the area around like Maxwell Street, um, which is unrecognizable, essentially got entirely urban renewaled out of existence, I would say. But by the time we got to the neighborhood, it had been so thoroughly lived in by different immigrant groups, basically. It had reached the end of its very, very long life cycle. Kind of, not very, very long. But like we were like the third or fourth immigrant group to come through this area. Like these were houses that were maybe built by like English immigrants and then went to a German immigrant, then to a Polish person, then to a Jewish person. (laughs) And so I think that like eventually you do have to tear stuff down, but only after it's like really done its work, (laughs) you know, like once it's fully like served as an important like stepping stool. And so Jews would, like, move neighborhoods, basically, as a whole group. We, like, kind of hopped around the city. It wasn't, like, sometimes it wasn't even, like, a shift, like, one neighborhood over or something. It was just we would all up and choose a new spot, basically, which is kind of crazy. So one of the things that Jane Jacobs really liked about the communities that she was trying to protect was how vibrant the housing stock was, how it enabled things like walkability, And one of the things that she was protecting was these vernacular buildings. So vernacular architecture is building done outside any academic tradition and without professional guidance. Vernacular architecture is far more common than people realize, and it constitutes 95% of the world's built environment. Yeah, um, like for Chicago, like in the rapid rebuilding after uh, the Chicago fire, a lot of houses were built you would just buy a set of plans in magazines or newspapers. And I've looked at these, and some of the listings are also interestingly entirely in German, which is something, because that was a lot of the migrants who were building in the 1870s. And so people would just bring up these uh, very, I call them house-shaped, because they're pentagonal pentagonal houses with a classic pitched roof. And these are known as like Chicago workers' cottages nowadays. And so, yeah, they were built by, you know, no one with any kind of professional anything. And they just served as, like, better than a shed. Um, in the post-Chicago fire. And what some families would do is once they had money, they would pick up the house and move it to the rear of the property where it would become a coach house. And they would build a nicer, like, brick-sided and stone facade building in front, like a two or three flat. Um, So, again, (laughs) no more professional than the last house they built um, just off of a standard set of plans. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said for that because... The buildings that were built in this time period are far more beautiful than the average house today that's built by developers. And I think part of that is because the buildings then were built by the people that would live in them. It was of consequence to them that the buildings 
would be beautiful or not. Mm-hmm. I, I do catch myself like waxing poetic for this time where everyone was building their own houses. But even the historic houses we look upon favorably in like Ravenswood, like a lot of those, if you look down the street, they are all very similar. And the answer is those were built by, I don't know if I'd call them large developers, but medium developers. It just, there used to be a mix of individuals, medium developers, and a few like small developers. It was like a pyramid, you know, where you had just like tons of people at the bottom all building and you had a few middle players and and then even fewer like big players. But now that is totally not how things are done. It is there are more big players. It's like an inverted pyramid almost. Yeah. Um, and if you yeah. try to build your own house like Q in that Strong Towns upzoned episode, you will be treated as a criminal. And the <laughs> first reaction people have is to call the police. I will say, granted, that man does not own that land. <laughs> it is yeah. the one thing. But I don't know. Housing development can still be done in like, cities and it's easier in Chicago than it is in places like San Francisco, like the most anti-development kind of cities. I guess we can talk about the, um, what is it? The housing crisis is the everything crisis video. You sent this to me. This has like a million and change views basically. Yeah. I have no idea who this guy is. Um, And frankly, I don't really like his tone. It was a little snarky and British. I linked that mostly because of the slogan. Yeah. With a housing crisis is the everything crisis mm-hmm. because that I think like sort of justifies legalized slums in yeah. a way because not to link so many slogans together <laughs> but there's this quote I really like from Marianne Williamson where she quotes FDR and she says that President Franklin Roosevelt said it had become clear to him that the country must become fairly radical for a generation. And this was in the context of the Great Depression and the housing, mm-hmm. or the sorry, in the stock market crash. Mm-hmm. And at the time, he was fully aware that by instituting the New Real Deal, he was doing something radical. And I think that we as a generation now are facing the most serious crisis outside of climate change, which is the housing crisis. Mm-hmm. And we need to tackle that by being radical. We can't incrementally create more housing because we're trying to and it's not working. We need to put as much housing online as possible. And this is demonstrated as well from an article from The Atlantic called The US Needs More Housing Than Almost Anyone Can Imagine by Annie Lowry. And within this, they cite this particular study where Enrico Moretti of UC Berkeley and Chang Tixi of the University of Chicago wanted to know how much GDP and productivity the United States gives up by throttling the housing supply in its biggest cities. In a blockbuster 2019 paper, they found that if New York, San Jose, and San Francisco, just those three cities, had the permitting standards of Atlanta or Chicago over the previous several decades, the US economy would have been roughly two trillion bigger in 2009. American households would have earned an average of $3,685 more a year mm-hmm. as a consequence of just increasing housing. That's three cities, given they're <laughs> the most financially productive. But that is crazy. Yeah. And that's just 2009. Yeah, yeah. The scale of housing we need is like, we were underbuilding, so we must overbuild. We don't get to do incremental housing. The chance for incremental housing was back in the 60s, 70s, 80s. I, yeah, I think that it things are going to have to look crazy for a second. That's kind of like my dream. Um, I know that, I mean, hey, I know that construction is complicated. I work in it. 
I know what it was like when material prices shot up like crazy because there was a like, we're homeowners, we're doing more stuff, more renovations at home during COVID and all that. And that really squeezed the price of wood and things like that. But I think the first thing that would need to happen is like, if we could, here I am advocating for all these bottom up things. And I'm, I'm gonna say like, if we could just get the federal government involved to like boost the production of construction materials ahead of a truly like once in a generation building boom. Like it should feel when you walk outside like something's happening. Like I know it's gonna suck. No one wants to live next to construction, but I'm like dreaming of a world where like you know financing for housing easier, not in a way that's gonna cause you know a bubble that's gonna burst like last time. Um, but it should feel like everyone is somehow involved in the building of a home. I know we don't have a labor crisis and we don't have an unemployment crisis anymore, but like. I want it to be hard for Amazon to like find workers because construction jobs are so plentiful and well-paying, basically. Because with the loss of, I mean, though manufacturing is coming back in America as like relationships with China wither, that is good to see, but it, thanks to automation, will never reach the point that it used to be. And I think that the trades can fill that gap. Yeah, it is a very crazy feeling to be in a place that's actually growing. This is something that as Americans that we kind of don't understand. We can't actually really conceptualize revolution because mm -hmm. we've lived in a neoliberal society where everything's incremental for so long. Yeah. But people living in China and in, and in East Asia, they can conceptualize this yeah. much more easily. Mm -hmm. But I went to Toronto this summer and it's the only place I've ever been to outside of the US that didn't feel sleepy. <laughs> and the US feels like it's really dynamic and there's so much happening in part because there's so much commerce. People are going out and buying things constantly. But there in Toronto, it felt like things were changing because there were just so many buildings going up. Mm -hmm. Like even in the places where there weren't currently buildings being constructed, every other block, there'd be like a sign that was put up, like there's about to be a building here, mm -hmm. getting community approval in advance. And mm -hmm. like, that was really cool, just to be in a place that didn't feel sleepy for once mm -hmm. when, I, when I stepped out the US. No, oh, yeah, that's like, in Chicago, construction-wise, like West Loop is just crazy. It had the most construction cranes, active construction cranes in the country in a given radius. And I love that that's happening, but like, I feel like, and good on those developers for like jumping the gun or, or getting on at the right time to build this stuff. But I think that it, the buildings we are building there, if you look at them, like they are very pretty and they each have their own little thing. There's a certain typography emerging of the West Loop high rise. One of the things that sucks about them is they have these huge pedestals because they have giant car parking garages inside them to meet the mandatory parking minimums that we have in the city. Um, and so I kind of wish that like, I don't know, I wish that I could go back in time, 10 years, change the law regarding parking minimums and then allow the West Loop building boom, you know? But it's also like, yeah, beggars can't be choosers. That's kind of a, that's kind of a theme of a lot of this, beggars can't be choosers, that like, we need the housing now. Like as long as it's safe, you know, it should be built yeah. like, yeah, we need, um, we need housing, like, immediately. Yesterday. You know, the article from The Atlantic, they have this other quote where they said, New York City issued fewer new housing permits in the 2010s than it did in all the 2000s or in the 1960s, yeah. 50 years prior. Yeah. That's crazy. No, yeah. like, And that's understandable because they're hemmed in geographically is one caveat you could you could give them, but no, <laughs> like there's still, if there's an empty lot, like something's gotta be done about it, like, you know? I mean, this article talks about how New York and San Francisco and San Jose, they in particular have pretty restrictive 
housing policies. And I get that vibe just from the news articles I see coming out of their cities. Like oh, yeah. some of the news articles I read about um, San Francisco are crazy. Like I was reading about how this, this is more so in the greater Bay Area. I think this was Marin County, but there was a law passed in California where like every municipality has to build housing. And if a certain number of new housing units aren't built per year, then all of the housing units or all of the building applications that have yet to be approved then get approved automatically. And there was a city that was about to build like a five-story building. And they were interviewing like local residents and they were saying something like, this is a safety concern. This building could fall over, it could kill us. <laughs> And it's like, you read about stuff like that. God, are they like, like medieval people, like fearing a building taller than the church? Like, that's what it, it feels like. It wasn't even next to other buildings. Oh. It was like near a road and they were nervous yeah. about the building falling on the road. It, that's, I always try and put myself in other people's heads with this. Like, I understand that not everyone lives my little yuppie cyclist, dense city lifestyle. And I try and like understand and, you know, reach across the aisle with stuff like that. But I don't think I could even manufacture that kind of indignation to just like, oh, someone is moving into my neighborhood, things might slightly change. Like, I just, you bought a slice of land, if that. You didn't buy, like, a, a place in time, you know? Yeah. You don't, you're not owed that, and no one owes it to you. It's just, yeah. Yeah, fine. I mean, what NIMBYs do is they throttle the housing market because from their perspective, they already have their slice of cake. They yeah. don't need you to get yours. Yeah, in no. fact, they'd actually prefer their neighborhood with less people for whatever reason, mm -hmm. even though their neighborhood is going to be less financially mm -hmm. vibrant and there's going to be less businesses, but mm -hmm. they want that. They know they want that. Yeah, and for that, I just, I don't know. That's that's in the, the most pernicious part of this, which is like the cultural changes that need to happen, not just the policy ones, you know? Like, it's one thing to change zoning but to change like the ideas of people, like there has to be some degree of democracy in this. So we need like a crazy radical solution to all this and that means lots of building. And so I think that leans people to think like, oh, so we should have like huge mega projects to get this done. I think there's always gonna be a place for that. I mean, like Chicago is a master class in very old buildings that are also very large. Merchandise Mart is the size of a city block. It was the largest building when it was built. It is like, I think that we've just been talking about the the cute ye olden days of Chicago where little like, you know, Polish factory workers were building flats and all that. But at the same time, titans of industry were building like cathedrals <laughs> yeah. to business. And that's like, that's another part of this story too. And so like a little microcosm of this is Lincoln Yards in Chicago, which was the old Stephen Finkel steel plant. So it's disgusting plant, like just full of like, it's essentially a brown site had to be retreated. And eventually it's going to be able to be used as like, you know, actual land for development. And it's in between Lincoln Park and like West Town, Wicker Park, like, you know, the two great neighborhoods. So it's clearly chock full of value. And it's being developed by a gigantic developer as a whole master plan for it. They're using the classic Chicago adage of, you know, make no small plans. And also nothing's been built yet because larger financial yeah. forces and they're trying to squeeze the money for more, the, the city for more tax incremented financing and all that. And I truly believe that if they had just forgotten about the whole big developer thing, just had, got this like city in there to start building infrastructure, like, you know, start building sewer lines and all that and chopped up into various sized lots and then just got medium and small developers in there, it would get built. <laughs> like, yeah. We would just, the city would naturally fill in what's essentially a gash between 
two great neighborhoods. Yeah, and they need to do that because in terms of walkability, as someone who lives in Chicago who gets around walking and taking the trains, one of the biggest areas that I try to avoid is by the river because it's so pedestrian and friendly. Mm-hmm. And we need neighborhoods like that that can bridge the other walkable neighborhoods across the river because otherwise it's severely lacking. Yeah. Right now, it is actually, I will admit, kind of nice because there's a street called Cortland, which will eventually be like kind of right in the middle of Lincoln Yards if it ever gets built. But right now, like, there's just no traffic on it whatsoever and they have a bike lane. And there's not too much. Sometimes the car traffic will like pack up like crazy, but the bike lane's always fine. So that's become my like go-to thoroughfare when I need to cross the river and go over there. But when they redo this area, I imagine they'll put in protected bike lanes as well and it will stay just as nice because um, that is the direction the city is going. Yeah. yeah. Oh, one little thing I want to talk on in different, in housing flexibility and bottom-up housing and all that is a lost housing type. I talked about SROs earlier but I also have a weird defender of boarding houses, which used to be more of a thing in America. You just have like a room, maybe there'd be a private bathroom, maybe there wouldn't be. But the one thing is there wouldn't be a kitchen in there. And so for food, you would have like a common dining hall and there would be, you could have different price plans. You could get like three square meals a day or you could have just dinner or something. Uh, And at its peak, a third to a half of people in a city were living in a boarding house which is crazy to think about. Um, A few things killed these. Interestingly, one of the things they said that killed these was like actual mass transit in the late 1800s, which let people like not have to walk to work, but rather take a train, which spreads things out. You don't need to cram everyone into a building. Also the FHA, Federal Housing Association, designated these as not dwellings in 1936. You probably couldn't get funds to build them anyway, because dwellings were then defined by having a kitchen, basically. Um, And then, like many things, when a problem needs to be solved with very elemental tools, people eventually start reinventing those tools and calling them innovation. And so there's been like these housing startups where they're basically designing boarding houses again. There's companies like Common, I think, um, and they're called adult dorms. And then there's always articles that come out that would like dunk on these, (laughs) basically, saying like, oh, these people just haven't grown up. They just want to continue the like never learning to cook and like living in a pre-furnished dorm room. But I don't know. It feels dumb to have my own studio apartment, my own kitchen, and meal prep my own meals and all this. It just seems like a waste of time. It makes more sense when you are in a family. It may, you'll make good use of your kitchen. I would totally give it up and just, like, <laughs> I don't know, have my three square meals a day or something in a dining hall. I'm not above that. People did it for years. I think yeah. they probably saved a lot more money on it, too. Yeah, and Chuck, in the episode of Upsound, where... He talks about the homeless guy who builds his own tiny home. He talks about how his daughter is about to start uh, college and his daughter is going to have to live in dorms. But he would ideally not have his daughter or anyone living in dorms. No one really wants to. It's just that society understands that it's a step into permanent housing Mm -hmm. after you're done with college. People need intermediaries in order to break their way into housing and permanent housing. The problem is, is that we don't have enough housing online in order to house all of the people that need it currently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, the style of building I live in, like the classic Chicago four plus one, one floor of parking and then four residential stories above. These were built all over the 60s and 70s once the city introduced the first parking minimums. And so these buildings came out of a kind of natural mathematics of like, 
all right, if you do this many cars and a lot this big, you can still fit, you know, four stories above it. You can make the math work. You just have to have one elevator or two if you cross a certain unit threshold. And they then became illegal in the next raising of the parking minimums, basically. The, the equation changed, and now you needed, like, two layers of parking in order to make that same thing feasible. Um, but they're not great buildings. They're ugly, <laughs> you know, like... People hated them when they were getting built originally because developers would buy three lots, either at single-family homes or two or three flats on them, and turn them into these. But they help keep housing prices down in dense neighborhoods like Lakeview East. Um, I was talking to, like, as I was getting shown these units, I was <laughs> weirdly waxing poetic about them to just, like, the lady showing me around. I'm like, yeah, this is this is very transitory. You know, like, no, like my building is largely one-bedrooms and studios. Like, this is not anyone's forever home. It's a whole bunch of other, like you know, young people. There's actually some old people in my building too. Like this is also, no, hopefully not their forever home. <laughs> it's not the final destination. It's just a necessary step for someone getting their foothold in a city and wants a place to their self. Yeah. yeah. So to circle back to the legalized slums idea, I think that this is an important topic to sort of address at the moment because on the local level, the biggest problem the city is currently facing is the migrant crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we're recording this in December 2023, and I don't know the actual numbers on it now. I think the city just announced they've cleared out the police stations where, you know, like migrants have been living just half in police stations and half in tents outside. There was ideas for a, like a large intent city kind of function thing, but a single tent, like a large, like, tarped-off area that didn't come to fruition. But I don't know. This is a real test of, like, it, yeah. I, are you, you would suggest that, like, if the city just allowed people to build kind of, like, natural vernacular housing in a certain chunk of land, that would accomplish this? So the problem with having the expectation that everyone lives in, like, a nice furnished home that meets our expectations as a society is that it doesn't scale. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to go from nothing to having a completed dwelling unit. And we as a society have determined that the solution is to get, you know, maybe five out of a hundred people into one of these yeah. places through public housing or through subsidies. And then the other 95 live outside in tents. Mm -hmm. And that's far less humane than if people were able to start to build housing for themselves. Because something Chuck at Strong Towns recognizes is that all cities started as informal housing because mm -hmm. they all started had chaotic beginnings when people started to just prop up buildings and then they learned how to like build in architectural styles and develop architectural traditions. But this is how like wealth initially starts. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work if you try to give 17,000 people all at once, like, housing that we don't actually have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I will say this is something that, like, not even in the peak of Chicago's growth, it, like, I don't think it was ever ready for a population movement like this, you know? No, there was no. a period where I think Chicago was getting yeah. 1,500 new arrivals per day oh. or per week. Oh, wow. So it was actually a yeah. faster growth than this, but... Yeah. That was when Chicago, I think, went from like, you know, 10,000 people to a million in 40 years, something yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. And we were able to do that because we didn't have zoning. 
We didn't have safety standards. We were just letting people come and build their own housing, which is how we're able to grow so quickly. Mm -hmm. But we are able to do it. It's just we're not able to do it when we put people in police stations for several months or an airport for several months or then maybe move them into a tent. It's just that this is like the people coming here, I'm sure that they on a personal level would prefer autonomy to some degree. And Mm -hmm. a lot of them I'm sure have skills to build buildings because as mentioned in the beginning of the episode, 95% of the buildings in the world were not built by people with training to build them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People have these skills, likely. Yeah. No, yeah, I guess we can use that as a, as a jumping off into, like, zoning and the things that are choking the um, housing supply. There's a great video. It's going, like, semi-viral, or at least like showed up on my YouTube thing, about how Americans have, like, very large stair requirements. We often require two stairwells for buildings above a certain height or unit count, and so that eats up a whole bunch of floor space that could be living space. And it's out of a just fear, you know, of like people safely exiting a building. But the fact is like, if you make a building out of like more fire resistant materials as we have modern access to nowadays, like uh, you don't need that level of stairwell access. Um, And so we're throttling our housing supply in that way. Yes, like buildings are gonna be more expensive to build nowadays than they were in the 1800s because we have like central, like we want central air and we want like, you know, all these nice modern conveniences. I don't know, like, of course we should be building houses like modern standards and like, we have like, we, what we have done is we have lightly overcorrected in terms of our rigidness with codes and zoning. Like we have had terrible fires in the past and we have learned from them, but now we are like limiting ourselves out of this fear. And like America is not any more fire safe than any other part of the world. We have like probably more fire deaths. Um, yeah, it's, we need to become radical for a generation. This mm-hmm. doesn't have to be forever. It's just that we need to allow people to build mm-hmm. their own housing, build vernacular architecture. It could be in places that are characterized as slums, but we can also shift our perspective as a society and just look at it as informal housing yeah. and something that we need in the moment in order to meet the demands that yeah. we're clearly presenting. It's, what is it? It's uh, letting perfect be the enemy of good. Yes, yeah. letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know, we don't want to see half-formed things. We want to just have this, like, perfect end result. We don't want to live through, like, the interstitial period. But, yeah. yeah. And then so my fantasy broadly for Chicago is that I would love a, like, very pro-development mayor. I don't know. I think that I think the gentrification discourse is going to, like, peter out. One of the things that is brought up in this The Housing Crisis, The Everything Crisis video is this study that was done on, like, observing displacement of people of color in regards to new builds of housing. And so they looked at all of it. And at first, the results are kind of troubling. This is like, if only a little bit of housing gets built uh, in an area, then black people are displaced. If more housing is built, again, black people are displaced. But there's this one, as you go to the end of the chart, it's like, if you build a ridiculous amount of housing, black people move in. (laughs) Like it's, It's, you just have to like, you don't know how close you are to winning. You know, if you're the the meme of the man digging through the tunnel and he yeah. turns away before he hits gold, like that's what it is with building housing. It's more than you think it is. Like, it is not like just a few houses. It is a whole. Like, yeah, redoing we haven't the brought up too many numbers or statistics in this episode, yeah. but if you want to look at the actual numbers, it is shocking 
how much we need to build. And especially if you compare the rate at which we're actually building it, it's like, I think we're like just at or just above or just below replacing the housing that's going offline yeah. mm-hmm. just due to natural like life cycle. natural life cycle. Mm-hmm. Like we're barely really adding any. Yeah. This is more outside of cities, more in like suburban or new developments, but uh, cities will dictate lot sizes and then they'll have rules about how much that the house should take up of that lot. And then so with this, this, you get inflated lot sizes, you get inflated houses and you get like a nicer house than someone kind of wants, you know? We all theoretically want a nice house, but we're all willing to make compromises, you know? But like sometimes, like I talk about the property ladder, the first rung of the property ladder is getting lifted up because how like first houses are getting too nice, basically. Yeah. Um, and there's one of the articles we talked about, um, or we have in the docket, is about like tiny houses, or as we used to call them, just houses. You know, <laughs> like we've yeah. just ballooned houses so much, um, and it's just like not worth it as a first investment, or you can't even get in there, basically. Well, we shouldn't be looking at them as an investment. Yeah. That's one of the things that has led to the housing crisis. Mm-hmm. So we look at housing as an investment class when it's really just a basic necessity. Yeah. And we as a society, although we talk about how we need to increase housing and pretty much every entity and organization will say that, mm-hmm. our entire financial system is geared in a way where we don't actually want that to happen because a lot of our financial wealth is predicated on the financial growth of real estate. Like TIF, tax increment financing, that's all through the proposed growth of real estate prices in a particular area, right? Yeah, -hmm. Yeah, it's based on the idea that you will increase things in the future, so we'll get that money later, so we'll give it to you now. Yeah, Um, there's that, there's pensions, there's government funds, there's all these different financial instruments that are tied up in real estate that don't need to be. Yeah, I was actually surprised on the drive over here. I was listening to a random uh, upzoned episode, and Chuck was talking about if we made like the changes he wants to see. He was like, "Oh yeah, instantly housing prices would you know crater to about fifty percent what they are." He's like, "They would I'd say crater, but it's getting to what they are actually, yeah, and not inflated by getting them entangled in international financial systems, basically. But that would also free up the economy to grow, as we talked about." if we built more housing. And so it would take a lot of trust. I don't know, it's like, if large governments got us into this mess, they have to fix it in terms of once we free up the production of housing and get this housing boom going, people are gonna start to lose the value of their homes and they should be compensated in some way, I think, maybe. I don't think that's not possible. That would be too much money. Yeah. Or we just start to build out an actual social safety net. Because in places outside of America, like where home ownership is not as prioritized, you don't need a house as a nest egg if there is a good social safety net. But the thing is, is like, okay, the majority of homeowners in America are old. I mean, not actually yeah. that old. It's if you average it out, it's not gonna be like super old. But like a lot of people will die in their home. It's like, why do you need to cash out? I mean, in certain <laughs> situations, they'll cash out and then go to a retirement home. Yeah. But why do you need this to gain value on a personal I, level, yeah, other I, than passing it down to the mm-hmm. next person? Yeah. But I don't think the people who are homeowners in society are owed that by the government mm-hmm. because they are a very 
influential subset of the voting age population. They're able to get what they want most of the time. We shouldn't give them any more. <laughs> yeah, you draw a hard line. I, I kind of like that. I was talking to one of my clients, and he was talking about how, like, depending on how you look at it, like, I mean, Chicago's a complicated market. Like, some people have had a crazy increase in housing prices, but from what he looked at for the houses he wanted, he saw it as basically kind of a stable investment. Like, it's always going to cost money, but he's like, he was British, so he's not part of this whole American thing of like, my house is going to make, is going to like carry me into wealth prosperity and all that. He just kind of saw it as like a cost to play the game of living in Chicago. You know, like if you want to, if you want buy into this city, you just need to like pay a rate. You know, it's not going to make you rich. He didn't say this, but I think he was seeing it as paying rent to the city. In yeah. A way, which we see our taxes as that. And then we see our mortgage payment as like, you know, our hard earned American cash. But yeah, it's just like, it's just something you have to do in order to participate in a wonderful environment that is going to pay you tons of money by living here. <laughs> yeah, you know? taxes are the price you pay for civilization. Yeah, uh-huh. And then I think he sees that like, yeah, like that's taxes. And then what he pays is just to have a nice house, you know, like not that it's some kind of yeah wealth creation engine. I do want to own a home. I want to own property. But like, I, I don't know, I would just prefer for this whole, again, this housing boom to get kicked off and then housing prices to crater and then I buy. But I'm not looking for that to carry me into being a millionaire, owning a home. I, I, I want to make money by working, you know, not just by sitting on an asset. Like, that should be enough to take care of you by earning money, savings, and then when Social Security kicks in, that should carry you into retirement. Your home should not. Yeah, I want to own a home in part just because we're pretty lucky in Chicago that our housing market doesn't cost the same as San Francisco or New York City mm-hmm. or any of the other more Large expensive stadium. metropolitan areas, because we could yeah. pretty easily. Mm-hmm. And I want to buy into this before I get priced out, but yeah. I w- ideally would like no one to get priced out of anywhere because we'd actually build enough housing for yeah. people to live in. There's this urbanist, M. Nolan Gray, and he, from his perspective as an urbanist, his ideas are pretty California-centric. Like, <laughs> he is pretty much 100% uh, historic preservation. But that's because he's coming from California, where TBH, there is very little old buildings mm-hmm. that are worthy of preservation. It's mostly just boomers saying that their homes from the 1960s shouldn't be changed. Yeah. But from his perspective, like, the housing crisis in California, way worse than the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah. But he oftentimes says that he thinks that San Francisco could go from where it's at now, which is about 800,000 people, to 2 million, like nothing, if they just got rid of all of these restrictive zoning policies. And I can see it. Like, I I can see, like, in a few decades, if San Francisco just changed its attitude towards building new housing, they could get 2 million, like, nothing. It's one thing for, like, because here in Chicago, we know that we're below our, like, population peak. So I get that. But... Like, I don't know, San Francisco, despite its cultural power, has always been, like, kind of small population-wise, less than you would think. That was some wild thing. It's like, it, San Francisco has the population of Cedar Rapids. Yeah. Iowa, which I didn't know. Uh, but that's not, that's not fair to compare it well, because the whole Bay can, Area, that's the peninsula, basically. Yeah, that doesn't I sound think. right to me. Yeah. That's probably Cedar Rapids' whole metro area yeah. to San Francisco proper. Yeah. But yeah, that. or I'm also very wrong, which I'll also own up to maybe, but yeah. Yeah. No, San Francisco is an interesting case. I mean, 
To, for the residents of San Francisco, their approach to the housing crisis has been like through like a mental health lens. They think that people who are homeless are largely homeless because of personal problems that need to be resolved through treatment and care and rehabilitation centers or mental health clinics. I'm really not of that opinion though, where people who are unhoused need largely substance abuse or mental health treatment first. Um, there's this really good article that comes from the library science field. It was written by um, people who are both like one foot in social work and one foot in library science. Oh, cool. And this article, they researched what library patrons who are seeking help from social workers request help for. Then they compared that to what library staff think they need help with, mm -hmm. as well as um, what the patrons actually get help with. So oh, wow, yeah. what they think <laughs> they need, what library staff think they need, what and the then what the patrons actually get help with. There's a huge disparity. So most of the library staff, and I would extrapolate this to being the rest of society, think that they first and foremost were gonna want help with their mental health. Mm -hmm. When in reality, the first thing was housing. Mm -hmm. And then after that, they were also getting help with things like hygiene, they were getting help with food, like really basic stuff, lower mm -hmm. on the hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, it was a very like, yeah, Maslow, <laughs> lower on that level. I think it varies city by city, but I listened to this one podcast about homelessness in San Francisco. And I've been told this by people in Chicago. They're like, all the homeless people in California, they're shipped there by the other cities who bring them in, all their crazy. And it's like, no, like apparently in Oakland particularly, like the majority of homeless people are just like used to be living in Oakland and then they got priced out and couldn't afford anything. And so they're homeless, but they're in, but they want to stay there because that's where their support system is. Basically, yeah. I think that there's that there's that homeless group, and that can be like I think addressed by what we're talking about making housing a normal price again, like it used to be. But then there is also like the substance abuse, homeless, and all that. And I used to be very pro housing first for that. I'm housing first broadly is what I'd say. But for substance abuse cases, just from what I've read nowadays and just seeing like statistics, I wish I could actually attach some hard numbers to this. I think that there does need to be a pretty like, there needs to be a detox program first, I would say, or else it's just like, it's almost not fair to them to give them something that is more to take care of, you know, to take care of a home when they're just learning how to like rewire their brain <laughs> to like be sober again. Um, yeah. I was reading about this um, sober living facility in Colorado. It's part of like a new approach, but it is kind of an isolationist approach where you go out to this like beautiful spot in nature and you make things and you do all that, but they're achieving the highest rates of success anyone's seen in an American sobriety program, but it doesn't seem very scalable is the thing with it. So I'm almost like, I read the end of the article, I'm like, well, why does this matter? Then? <laughs> like, yeah. It's great to hear that these like few individuals got this, but unless you did scale, and it also seems very built up by like the wonderful people who run it, you know? But yeah. if I think the solution to that side would be like, if we could somehow find a way to scale this amazing program, <laughs> Um, and then, then and only then, you know, do a housing first thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I do think they need, my opinion is they need housing first, not necessarily like they're responsible for mm -hmm. their own home. Yeah. Like they should, I think, be given housing where they're getting some degree of monitoring yeah. and they should get like assistance getting back on their feet. But mm -hmm. yeah, so people in California though, they oftentimes think that 
homeless people are not from their state. But you see this in other ways too, where the things that people in cities consider to be degeneracy, they oftentimes start to claim that people who are engaging in those behaviors are not residents. Like you see this with protesters, Mm -hmm. like they'll say that the protesters are all coming from outside of the city. Yeah, they're not from here. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. you'll see this too with like gang activity. Like they'll Mm -hmm. say that people and gangs are all, you know, gangs from Mexico. Yeah, coming from my area actually. I think the light version of that is in Chicago, people accusing people of being from uh, like Ohio. And stuff like that, people just being yeah. like, Oh like yeah, when standard... people come here for St. Patrick's Day. Oh yeah, yeah. But like the classic accusation you make against like a you know Lincoln Park tech bros, like you're probably just from a state school in Iowa and they'll probably agree with you. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, are. anytime someone tells me they live in Lincoln Park, I'll be like, oh, did you just move here? <laughs> like not quite as, as, as frank as that, but pretty yeah. frank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, yeah, my uncle uh, lived here briefly in like the late 80s, early 90s. And so there was one building in Lincoln Park that like everyone moved into and out of basically on their Chicago journey. It was just like the receiving center. It was just very cheap studios and one beds. Um, this is an, I'm trying to figure out which building it was. Maybe it was on diversity or something. But yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Um, one other thing I wanted to talk about is an article from the Strong Towns website called A Love Letter to Slums, The Urbanism of Final Fantasy VII. Oh, yeah, that was... was, Yeah. (laughs) Definitely raised an eyebrow when I saw that, but yeah. It's a think piece that could be a little bit better. I mostly just read it because it's the only, like, article from the Strong Towns website that comes up when you look for the keyword slums because Mm -hmm. they're avoiding it. Um, Rightfully so because this is a controversial topic, but within this article, they talk about informal settlements and... That got me thinking about how there's a difference between informal settlements, slums, and vernacular architecture, where there's definitely a bit of a spectrum in between what you would call, say, like modern housing and slum housing. Like in between, you can find Mm -hmm. vernacular architecture and informal architecture. I would say that vernacular architecture is a bit more formal because it engages in architectural traditions that Mm -hmm. are passed down through generations. Informal housing, usually implies that it's not like spur of the moment, like it hasn't just been built. Mm-hmm. Could be a few decades where things have been incrementally improved already. Mm-hmm. Some housing though, just means like, basically like, honestly, it, I, I think that from a, humani- from a humane standpoint, we should like permit it more as a society, but pe- we need to get people out of it as quickly as we can. Yeah, transitory. It's, yeah. It's, that's, I guess, like been something we've touched on a few different ways, like, yeah, on a, like, yeah, it's housing, not our aspiration. Yeah, housing can be transitory, like to serve just an immediate need, just in the way that I am transitorily living in the tiniest studio in Chicago. Um, but yeah. One of the things that this article brings up that I thought was interesting was there th- there's this quote, an informal community is a sort of proto-city in which residents build what they can with what they have and then constantly work to improve on it incrementally over time. This is, in fact, the only way you can build a place when you have A, very limited resources to draw on, and B, no ability to take on large amounts of debt. Note that these conditions describe nearly all human settlements before the 20th century. It's only in the very recent past that we begin to see the anomaly of places planned and built all at once to a finished state. This quote is important, I think, as it connects back to Jane Jacobs' idea of unslumming. But this describes also just growth. 
how for Jane Jacobs, I guess, the idea of unslumming could be applied to a pre-planned community that was built to modern standards and then started to decline. And then it could, you know, progress mm -hmm. and revert back to its original form. But also for a place that starts from nothing, this is something that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's incrementalism, like incremental growth, like the large growth that Chicago experienced in the 1800s, like it was real. <laughs> it was yeah. a real growth of like fueled by actual people working and coming in versus like the fake growth of suburbs, you know, something that looks like growth, but it's, it's if you build it, they will come. And it's like, it should not be like that with housing. Like it should, yeah. you should build it as you need it, basically. Always build a little bit more than you need, you know? But That's now, how you get prices to go down. Yeah, yeah, build a little bit more than you need. But since we didn't do that for like, <laughs> I think it's like, it's all this kind of like uh, karmic in and out system, I feel of like, since we got this, since America got this blissful time of like no construction, <laughs> basically, like we must now, the bills come due and it's time. It's time for the building. Yeah. Um, On that note, it's maybe a good time to wrap up. So we talked about the slogan legalized slums, which as we explored through the episode can be interpreted pretty literally where we think that maybe it's more humane to let people build their own housing if they don't have any and mm -hmm. local, state, and federal governments can't provide it. But also, this slogan can be used to just think about building more dense housing, allowing people to build more vernacular architecture without as restrictive zoning or as restrictive building codes. But you're free to interpret this however you want. Yeah, and then yeah, my notes on this are just... I wish there was more I could give someone to like go out and do something with this, but I guess, I don't know. I think the conversation is rising. People know about this stuff. Like, we're realizing that like when you look around you and all you see are just like vacant storefronts that like <laughs> landlords are waiting out to make more money on and are not being turned into, you know, thriving local businesses and nothing is getting built. I think people are gonna start to start to turn towards our direction. Because yeah. Oh, yeah. we as a society, we increasingly turn to politics as what we want to change our lives and change our world when there's ways outside of politics to change yeah. our lives and change our world. But mm -hmm. what we've been falling for and what I've also fallen for for a period of time was looking only to the federal government mm -hmm. to change the world that I live in. Mm -hmm. Because the local level, even not on the government level, but just the community level, there's so much that can happen there politically to change. And we need to change these laws and permit people to just build things. Because, mm -hmm. again, this is our biggest crisis outside of climate change. Yeah, and it touches every other crisis, too. But, yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>